Good morning, family. Welcome to Christ City Church. We are so glad you're with us, uh, particularly those of us, those of you who are joining us on Zoom. Um, as I said earlier, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and welcome to the first Sunday of the last month of 2020. Three more weeks till Christmas, four more weeks till we get to turn the page on this year. I can't wait. And there on cue is Mr. Love. And yet, we do wait, All right? That's one of the characteristic actions of the season of Advent in which we find ourselves. It's about waiting. It's about not just skipping past. It's about being present with the longings and the yearnings as unfulfilled and uncomfortable as that makes us feel. It's about recognizing and acknowledging both our deep need for God to come into our midst and the ways God is asking us to be present to God's self in the midst of the wait. As I've been stepping into this season, God has been reminding me in so many ways through so many people that there are still so many things for me in this year, in this month, in this week, in this day. And the encouragement is to not overlook them in my haste to get to an imaginary or illusory so-called new beginning. There has been a weariness uh, deep in my bones, deep in my soul. That is more than just the sum of the sorrows of this year, more than just a sadness at not being able to be with people, more than just an exhaustion at the division and polarization and lies, more than just a fatigued anger at the sin sicknesses of racism and power grabbing and selfishness and self-preservation at the expense of others, at the ways we have failed to correct and address the multiple methods of dehumanizing and otherizing people. It has been a hard year a wearing and wearying year, a year of being drained and almost drowning, a year of shadow and not quite presence. Kind of like having to settle for a Zoom meeting when you just need an actual hug. Our Advent series is Light in the Darkness. And that title comes from Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a pitch dark land, light has dawned. A child is born to us. A son is given to us. And authority will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom, establishing and sustaining it with justice and righteousness now and forever. That is what we are invited to take hold of this season. A glimmer of hope, a spark of possibility. But more than that, as Matthew named for us last week, a promise of God, a promise of God, all of it fulfilled and brought to fruition in a little Jewish baby born in poverty in Roman-occupied Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Today, we lit the candle of peace, and that's what I'm gonna talk about today. When I, was a, when I was a kid growing up in Hong Kong, going to Sunday school at a Baptist church, there was a song we used to sing that went, I've got peace like a river. Maybe you sang it, or maybe you know it. Maybe you'll have that song stuck in your head now. You're welcome. But as a kid, I didn't really understand the concept of peace or the idea of it or the importance of it at the time. 
I grew up in a pretty sheltered uh, environment, and, and I guess I knew peace as the opposite of war. But, but for me, in that place, in that space, war was so much bigger than me and so far away. It was fighting in other countries, fighting between countries. And so it had little to do with me and I with it. And I recognize the privilege of that upbringing. But in that context, peace for me was just not fighting. It was the absence of conflict. And so when it came to Jesus, the Prince of Peace, as the prophecy in Isaiah names, and for me that meant, well, Jesus would stop folks from fighting, which is good, right? It's a start. But somewhere along the way, thanks be to God, I was taught and I discovered and learned the deeper biblical divine understanding of peace. Shalom in Hebrew. Peace that was not just the result of an absence of conflict, but was the presence of wholeness, the presence of flourishing, the presence of restored and right relationship between people. And when I began to see that and I began to unpack the dynamism and the creativity and the beauty implicit in that, it was as if a whole new reality had opened up to me, a whole new palette of color, a new level in a video game. New possibilities, new opportunities, new invitations. Here's how Pastor Eugene Peterson puts the difference. Here's how he describes it. He says, I try to get peace by getting rid of what irritates me. God gets peace by restoring everything to health. I try to get peace by getting rid of what I don't like. God gets peace by loving the unruly and unlovely into a life-changing salvation. I try to get peace by saying, shut up. I don't want to hear it anymore. God gets peace by saying, be still and know that I am God. Peace is shalom. It's wholeness. It's flourishing. That's what Jesus is the prince of. But what does peace mean for us today? What is peace when we here in the U.S. face ever-rising peaks of coronavirus infections and deaths and the losses and the griefs, the individuals, families, and circles of acquaintance that are tied to every single one of those numbers? What is peace as we struggle to figure out how to live and love and work and parent and survive in the face of exhaustion and stress and anxiety and grief? What is peace in the face of continuing gun violence or systemic injustice? And what peace can there be without justice? Or is that not just a mere facade to paper over the deep wounds and flaws and sins of our society? As I was meditating this week on the concepts of peace, as I was praying over peace and into peace, I kept hearing the words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, which we read earlier. Christ is our peace. Jesus not only brings peace, as the angel chorus sang to the shepherds, peace on earth, goodwill to all, Jesus is our peace. Now, one way of interpreting that is that is if we have Jesus in our hearts, to use a phrase I was taught as a kid, we will always be self-assured. We will never experience conflict. We will always have a sense of stillness and settledness in our souls. But those of us who have been Jesus' followers for any length of time will tell you that's not the case. And in fact, Jesus himself would tell you that. So what does it mean that Christ is our peace? What is the good news of the shalom of God for us and for our world this Advent season? A theology professor of mine back in London, in one of the first classes of a quarter, would draw a triangle on the board. And in each corner, he would write a different word. God neighbor, and self. 
God, neighbor, and self from the great commandment, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Each of them, he would say, is important. Each of them is connected. Each is indispensable. And in fact, our love for one is and must be displayed in our love for the others and vice versa. James, the brother of Jesus, would say, we cannot love God whom we have not seen if we do not love our neighbor whom we have seen. And how will we love our neighbor as ourself if we do not know how to love ourselves? And with what love would we love our neighbor if not for the love of God? This is how I've been thinking about peace. Peace with God, peace with others, and peace with ourselves. Now, we could also include peace with creation, with the created world as well. But I want to focus today on the interpersonal aspects. Christ is our peace in all of those dimensions. But let's start where Paul starts, right? In Ephesians 2, he said, Christ is our peace. He made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. With his body, he broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us so that he could create one new person out of the two groups, making peace. He reconciled them both as one body. In Jesus' day and culture, the main distinction between us and them, who was in and who was out, was Jews and Gentiles. Gentile basically means not a Jew. Many of the struggles of Jesus' first followers, who were Jews, were centered around whether and how to accept Gentile believers. Jews bore the sign of God's special covenant, his pact with Abraham in circumcision. And so the question, should Gentiles also have to be circumcised, was one the early church had to wrestle with, as well as questions about whether Gentiles had to observe the Jewish, Jewish food purity laws and whether the spirit of God could even work with Gentiles. And non-Jews didn't have particularly good feelings about Jews either. There was difference and division and hatred between them. What Paul says in unpacking the work effected by Jesus' death on the cross was that Jesus died for all people. Jesus died for all people, not just Jews. And in fact, Jesus' goal in dying for all people was to make one group, a new people, a new family, but then he uses an even more integrated and even more indivisible analogy. One new person, one body. Christ is our peace with others because he showed us on the cross that he did not just die for me or for people like me. God so loved the world and we are invited to do the same. Paul would continue in his letter to the mostly Gentile believers in Ephesus he would say, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father through Christ by the one Spirit. And so now you, Gentiles, of whom most of us who are listening right now are, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Rather, you are fellow citizens with God's people and you belong to God's household. As God's household, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building is joined together in him and it grows into a temple that is dedicated to the Lord. Christ is building you, you all, into a place where God lives through the Spirit. Paul is talking about the church, 
the body of Christ, the family of faith, the people of God. We, we are called, just as the early church was, to be centered around and shaped by, to have as our cornerstone, Christ Jesus himself. Jesus is the defining characteristic of our community and of us as individuals, not whatever might separate or even distinguish us from one another. So even the things that are important to us must be secondary to our identity as those who are following Jesus, those who are becoming more like Jesus, those who are now members of one new body. This is a word for us, Christ City family as we seek to press into the fullness of who God is calling us to be and become. We have heard the invitation of the Spirit to be a community that in Christ bridges differences of race, ethnicity, and culture. That is a place where you can be home with God, whatever your relational status, sexual orientation, or gender identity, whatever your class or educational attainment, whether you're a native Washingtonian, a transplant, or just here for a season. Now, bridging difference is not to sand away our uniqueness or whitewash our culture. We seek unity around Christ, not uniformity. And that takes all of us being willing to participate to discern together the movements of the Spirit and to offer the same grace and the same commitment to one another that Jesus has showed us. Now I want to name competing commitments of unity and diversity, of where we are the same and where we are different. A mentor of mine put it this way, there's a big lie that if I have to give something up, anything up, someone's doing something wrong. In every healthy and loving relationship, we got to give things up. It's just a matter of knowing what we're giving up and who's giving it up and why we're giving it up. It's a question of who needs to change and what won't change and what must change. And just like uh, my wife, Carolyn, and I have conversation after conversation after conversation to figure out what we as like, individuals are willing to sacrifice and what we're not willing to sacrifice and how we're willing to change and how we don't want to change and what we're bringing from our families of origin that we didn't even know was a thing and how we navigate the new terrain of raising a child who is not either of us, but both of us at the same time. We're needing to talk to each other needing to have honest conversations, needing to name hurt and to repent and to forgive. That's not a sign of a community that's failing. That's a sign of a community that's wanting to grow. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic work, Life Together, wrote this. He said, the one who loves their dream of a community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of that dream, a destroyer of that community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. Christ is our peace with others in that we are now part of something bigger than ourselves, joined to Christ. And we are invited to grow with everyone else who is also joined to Christ. Christ dwells in every person who accepts him. And so when we, church, deal with one another, when we 
email or text one another, another when we meet in small group with each other or sing songs together, but separately or take communion together, but separately, or when we jump on Zoom calls together, we are not just interacting with another human being, but with Christ in them. Just as a few weeks ago, Pastor Inez talked about the hard work of peacemaking outside of our church community. And just as Pastor Lisa talked about the hard work of loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, this too, loving others in our church body, this too is the work of peacemaking. And that's the aspect I want to name today. But I want to, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to those messages Again, those other messages from Pastor Inez and Pastor Lisa, because all of them, all of these messages fit together. They're they're a trilogy of sorts. Christ is our peace with others. Now, I want to tie the other two dimensions together. Christ is our peace with God and with ourselves. One of the lessons I have been learning and relearning unpacking in therapy and in spiritual direction, hearing and needing to hear again and again and again is that I am loved by God. Now, this is not about ego fulfillment. Uh, no, I think, it's, I think it's because so much of our experience in this world tells us otherwise. So much of our own dysfunction and sin can be traced back to forgetting or to losing sight or to perhaps never being told of the truth that no matter what you have done or left undone, no matter what has been said or done to you, you are a beloved child of God. Repeat after me. I am a child of God. I am made in the image of God. So often our experiences tell us otherwise. Right? A parent or a caregiver who neglected or abused us, a friend or partner who ghosted or betrayed us, authority figures and those with power who have not protected us as they ought, but instead even been the cause of our dehumanization and distress. Or, or even the ways we fail ourselves, the ways we aren't who we'd like to be, the regrets, mistakes, the failures. In those situations, the divine message gets crowded out real quick, and then we tend to act out of our hurt and woundedness, and we who are hurt people hurt people. In the words of South African Archbishop Desmond Tutu, to find the path to peace, you will have to meet your pain and speak its name. In other words, in order to get to shalom in yourself, you will have to sit with what's going on inside of you to name the longing and the despair and the sadness and the anger and the things you're trying to avoid and the things maybe you're not even aware of because you're running away from yourself, distracting yourself, numbing yourself. We don't like to talk about those things or, or even to think about them, especially with all we've been through already and all we're still currently going through. It's all a lot. I was talking to my spiritual director a few months ago and, and I was saying, you know, I don't know if I have the time or the margin or the energy to go down this path of naming and unpacking stuff because I'm asking myself, if I go down this path, will I be able to come back up to do what needs to be done? You know, caring for other people and for my family, for my neighbors, for my city. You know, I had this picture in my mind of this, this soul work leaving me in a useless heap on the floor, unable to do the stuff that I needed to do 
or maybe that I thought people need me, maybe, or maybe that I thought people needed me to do. And my spiritual director, who is a wise, wise man by the name of Chuck, he looked at me as we were FaceTiming and with all of the empathy that can be communicated through a camera, he said, look at it this way. If you don't do this work, you definitely won't be able to help anybody else. In our last series on the Beatitudes, Matthew preached on Jesus saying, blessed are the pure in heart, those whose outer lives and inner lives match up, those whose component parts are integrated, those who have integrity. Whatever's inside of us, whatever mix of health and unhealth, that will come out, whether in a trickle or in a flood. And if we try to bottle up to suppress our unhealth, our pain, our hurt for too long, it will find ways to escape. Or maybe one day it will blow through all of the protective measures we thought we had put in place. And then, well, we'll have no other choice but to deal with it because there will be nothing but mess to sort through. Christ is our peace with ourselves and with God because what we're about to celebrate this season, the coming of God to earth as a human child, was God communicating God's love to us. I'm coming to save you. I'm coming to rescue you. I'm coming to show you that I love you and how much I love you. This is the time of year when we give and receive gifts as expressions of our affection and care for one another. And although it may not be an explicit rule, we tend to give our best gifts to those we love the most, right? Maybe I just, that was a confession. That was a time of confession. Well, in Jesus... God's gift to all of us, every single one of us, was God's son, God's very self, God's divine presence in the form of a baby boy. A priceless gift to us all to remind each of us that we are loved, to remind you that you are loved. I hope that hits home for you in a deep way this Advent. To paraphrase Father Richard Rohr, Jesus came to change our minds about God, not to change God's mind about us. You will never be more gracious with yourself than God was in Christ. For Christ is our peace with God. In Ephesians 2, verse 16, Paul wrote, The cross ended the hostility with God. When Jesus came, he announced the good news of peace to you who are far away from God and to those who are near. Christmas means what Christmas means because Easter happened. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, well, he'd he'd have been just another wannabe Messiah, just another failed savior. And uh, going out on a limb here, his birth probably wouldn't have meant as much. But because of Easter, because Jesus, who lived a life that proclaimed God's kingdom among us, who embodied God in human form, who demonstrated God's love and care and healing and justice and anger at oppression and sin in tangible real ways with tangible real people. Because this Jesus chose the ultimate sacrifice of taking the sins of the world onto himself and into himself and dying so that we might have God's life both now and into forever. Because of that, whatever wrongdoing, Whatever sin and death and shame and guilt might have stood in the way of us being in relationship with God, that's been removed. In Christ on the cross, God, who was Christ on the cross, said, I love you this much. That's the heart of the gospel. 
What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Because Christ in his life and death defeated anything that might try to separate us from the love of God. And so Christ is our peace with God because Christ is God and he came, he told us himself to bring us life to the full, flourishing and wholeness and shalom. And in that we know God's heart for us. In that we know who God is and what God is like. But Christmas is not just the prologue to Easter. Jesus didn't just show us who God is and what God is like on the cross. He showed us that in every moment and in every aspect of his life, including in how he came to us. In Jesus, God was on the cross. But in Jesus, God was in the manger too. And in the womb. Here's what still gets me every Christmas. The God who created the universe, all 93 billion light years wide, from the countless stars and solar systems and galaxies down to the countless grains of sand and the atoms that make up all of the living things in between, that creator and sustainer and initiator God came to earth as a human being. That God came to earth as a baby waiting around, being formed for 40 weeks, subject to the whims and submitted to the care of an unwed teenage mom. That God came to earth as a poor child, gave himself to be raised by a fairly anonymous, unheralded, but faithful couple who were part of an oppressed and brutalized people in a backwater province in a corner of the Roman Empire. That tells me something about the character of God. That tells me something about the methods of God. In Luke's telling of the nativity story, Joseph and Mary, they traveled to Bethlehem. And, and it says, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, some older translations say there was no room at the inn, but the Greek word that's used here isn't the term for a commercial inn. It's rather the term for a guest room in a family home. So get this. A typical village home would have likely been on one level with two rooms. Okay, One room was for guests and the other room would be the family room where everyone would cook and eat and sleep. And in that home, there would have been an area over here where the family's animals would be brought in for the night. Sort of like an attached garage, but with only a low wall to separate the rooms. And that's where they would keep the mangers, the feeding troughs. Some of us are, are familiar with the story of Jesus at Christmas. And you know, maybe in our retelling, Joseph and Mary, they arrive in town and they're knocking on doors only to find there's no room available for them anywhere. And so, so they, they have to make do with a dirty, dingy stable or a cave on a hillside somewhere. But in Middle Eastern custom, the son of a royal line returning to his hometown as Joseph was, he would have been welcomed with open arms. He would have had either family or family friends offer to take them in. In Middle Eastern custom, it would be a shame on the village to turn away a girl about to give birth, especially a girl engaged to one of their own. And in Middle Eastern custom, it would have been traditional for the village midwife and other women in the family to help with births especially so for a young girl giving birth to her firstborn. So what probably happened 
was that the relatives they were coming to stay with also had to host others because of the census. And as a result, the guest room over here was full up. And so Joseph and Mary had to stay in the family room with everyone else. And when Jesus was born, surrounded by his relatives, they had to use a manger as a bed. Jesus was not born into comfort and calm, but in the midst of chaos. Among an oppressed people, there was a deep-seated and desperate desire for freedom from injustice and oppression that had been simmering for hundreds of years. That was the milieu of first-century Palestine. Joseph and Mary didn't have the luxury of their own guest room after a long and tiring journey, but they were crammed in with everyone else in the family. Jesus was not born into comfort and calm, but in the midst of chaos. And let me ask you, which one sounds more like real life right now? Comfort and calm or chaos? Which one sounds more like your life right now or your family's life or the city we live in or our country or our world? People can dismiss Jesus as irrelevant to their lives because sometimes we can think of him as passive and removed, as so perfect that he couldn't possibly understand what we're going through with our chaos and our disorder. We have this strange notion that the life of faith is supposed to be trouble-free and smooth sailing. But there are a few things that Jesus promised us, and one of them was trouble. In fact, he pretty much guaranteed it. In this life, you will have trouble. Not you may have trouble. But he says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Even as a baby, Jesus showed that he was not phased by the trouble of the world when he was born in the midst of chaos. More than that, Jesus was born to bring peace in the midst of chaos. And more than that, Jesus was born to be peace in the midst of chaos. See, true peace is not imposed like the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, or the Pax Americana, using slaves to pave roads over blood-stained soil or to build the people's house on stolen land. True, per true peace is a person, Christ himself. This Advent season, I pray, that you might know the peace of God, Christ himself, the one who brings life and flourishing, who makes possible right relationship through repentance and forgiveness in every dimension of your life. And let me encourage you to do this in one simple way this week. Be still. Actually sit still. For a few moments every day, allow yourself to not be defined by your doing, but to bring yourself to the awareness that you are deeply loved by God, a love proven by the coming of the Christ child, a love that continues to be with us and in us by God's spirit, even right here and right now. In the midst of the chaos, let Christ be born in you again anew each day. O oh, come, Lord Jesus, be our peace. We need you. We ask in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.